Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Glani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. Johannes Fiewig, who is the founding dean and chief academic officer of the Dr. Karen C. Patel College of Allopathic Medicine at Nova Southeastern University. The college received LCMA accreditation in record time and has received national attention because of its innovative case-based system sequence curriculum and through a unique value-driven economic model that is utilizing intentional cost reductions and strategic reinvestments of savings to produce a high-quality academic program. Dr. Fiewig is a passionate believer in the power of education to transform lives, develop talent and ideas that lift individuals, communities, and states through strategic partnerships, shared mission, and intellectual curiosity. So, Dr. Fiewig, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, hi, Shiv. Uh, good seeing you again. I always enjoy to work with Osmosis, so uh, good hearing from you. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And, you know, obviously, I know a lot about your background, having done the research and being your host today. But we like to ask our guests, in their own words, describe what got you interested in a career in medicine and then academic medicine after that. Yeah, it's a good question. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'm wondering why I did all this. <laughs> There's no question about this. But I think, uh, you know, in academic careers, also in medicine, it boils down to mentorship. And, you know, what kind of people made you interested in a particular career, especially in medicine? And I had several great mentors throughout my career, and it still continues, uh, that I'm impressed with uh, some individuals who still innovate and drive our profession forward. I also want to say that my encounter with the students is extraordinarily rewarding because getting good ideas from young people, you know, who are still unspoiled in their ideas and uh, can articulate good ideas, uh, that really is, uh, in my opinion, most rewarding. And uh, that's why I continue to do what I do. Definitely. And, you know, we'll definitely get back to that in the, at the end of the interview, because we like to ask what advice you'd give to the young people who are pursuing careers in medicine. But you mentioned mentors, and I had the opportunity to actually have one of my mentors on the podcast a couple months ago, Dr. Daniele Rigamonti, who's a neurosurgeon at Johns Hopkins, who I shadowed uh, and still keep in touch with to this day. Do you mind sharing any specific uh, names of people who, who truly influenced your career? I think that'd be instructive to our audience. Yeah, sure. From my accent, you see that I was actually born in Europe, uh, particularly in Germany. So I spent my early three decades actually in Germany, and uh, I was inspired by a family member of mine who was a doctor. So at the age of seven, you know, I actually pretty much knew what I wanted to do. But I saw that, you know, a lot of obstacles for somebody in a family who did not, uh, my, my father and my mother never entered college. So I'm the first college grad in my family here. And, uh, you know, pulling your way through and viewing life as a marathon and not a sprint is really important to get where you want to be. I, I can tell you, Chef, that based on my experience, and I tell my kids, I have two sons, the same story. If you want something, you can get it. You just have to pursue it, it may be a lifelong pursuit, but I think the good news is that if you want things, if you're smart and if you're dedicated to what you want to do is uh, things are achievable. And I think that's a very important message that I provide to students and to learners, you know, in my institution here. Yeah. So speaking of Dr. Karen C. Patel, College of Allopathic Medicine, can you give us a bit of background about what makes it unique? Uh, obviously, you're the eighth MD granting university in Florida. So we'd love to, our audience, many of them may be applying to your school. What are the things sure. that you're most proud of? 
everybody wants to be unique. Everybody wants to be, you know, better than somebody else. If you build a new medical school, you are less encumbered by the past, and then you can plan better for the future. And we are taking advantage of that. The first step, you know, in this build was uh, to develop a curriculum that is mainly active learning based. So we're doing a couple of lectures, but we are actually focusing more on problem-based learning, on team-based learning in our environment. And um, our curriculum is case-based. So we have cases. So we don't teach anatomy, biology, and physiology, and all those basic sciences in isolation. We are combining all those sciences in a single case that allows the student to better comprehend the connection between anatomy, physiology, and the basic sciences centered on a disease setting or a symptom that the patient expresses. I think that that concept is highly successful and uh, we see the success based on our student outcomes. So we have extraordinary, almost 100% pass rates on USMLE 1 and 2. And it just validates that active learning is the way to go. And it's the way we can you know, facilitate retention of very complex contents to our learners and particularly to our students. Yeah, I could not agree more. I mean, I remember when I was sitting in lecture halls at Johns Hopkins, truly being like, why are we still learning this way? It's the same as the Flexner Report over a century ago. Um, and then when I went to business school, which is, everything is case-based in business school, that just seemed like a much more appropriate way to teach medicine as well as anything in a more active setting. If I could, I just would like to mention our connection to our business school because uh, we have a strong affiliation actually with a business school that's uh, housed just one block away from me. And, you know, from a educational content, I think that business principle, the business of medicine, value-based medicine, complex health systems, all those are unmet educational targets that we were able actually to include in our curriculum to make this more up-to-date. So it's great if a student really understands the basic science, and I'm not minimizing the impact of physiology or anatomy. All this needs to be taught so that people really understand the whole science around human disease. But I think in these days, a curriculum would not meet its target if these business components or the business of medicine or new ways of producing healthcare in our country would not be addressed uh, in one way or the other. So it's really hard to change curriculum. So with our more proactive approach, having a new school in place, we had these deliberations very early on and uh, came up with a curriculum that connects both business and medicine in a kind of unique way. Yeah, I mean, that's actually one reason I even reached out in the first place was I remember reading your article earlier this summer of a medical school designed for the post-COVID-19 era, and you preempted one of my questions, which is obviously you're incorporating some curriculum around value-based medicine and the business of medicine, digital health, all these other innovations. What are some of the lessons you think we should all take away from the COVID pandemic, and how are you thinking of training clinicians differently because of COVID-19? Well, if we roll back one year, you know, the pandemic hit us and hit the United States like a truck. I mean, it's a, it had tremendous impact. And I don't think we will go back to pre-pandemic conditions uh, from now on, because everyone thinks about what did we learn from the COVID situation and how do we prevent these issues? And also what kind of lessons did we learn and everybody is writing about it. So, I mean, the first thing what happened is that we had to bring our entire curriculum online. And as an educator, you know, 
I think there is very limited experience put uh, PBL and TBL online. There's very little examples to do that. And um, actually, our students were very participatory in doing this, you know, creating different breakout rooms, creating different spaces, uh, how we could facilitate a PBL uh, session. And I think that these things are incredibly powerful, you know, how education was continued to convey. We did not miss a single day of learning despite the pandemic. Uh, it was just different, but, um, uh, you know, it's not only good, but it's also the challenges were the communication. How do we maintain a good line of communication with our students, with institutional leadership, and with other stakeholders in the community to continue that. And some of our students have expressed, you know, angst of um, isolation and uh, not being able to connect on the fly as they did before. And we took this very serious. So our communication plan was actually several fold. You know, I dealt actually, you know, as the dean with uh, our president and with the president's council every day and talking about how can we mitigate things? How can we make things better? What new technologies do we have to purchase? The pivot you know, to invest more in digital technology was very clear and it affected our budget. Fortunately, we had some savings you know, because of the lack of travel and uh, other savings that we could produce. And we used those cost savings to in reinvest into digital technology. That was kind of a, a savior for us, you know, throughout the pandemic when the virus was most like, infectious uh, and when we didn't have any vaccines available at that time. So this is kind of the reinvestment that, you know, is part of our value-based thinking. Value means, you know, quality divided by cost. And if you look at your expenses, you know, you constantly have to prune and trim and figure out, you know, do I really need this? Or can I take this away and then change my budget in a way that we get the most value out of it? So as you can see, Shiv, this is not a term that is reserved for healthcare. This is affects education and also science in a major way. And it's actually one of my guiding principles that I, as a European immigrant here, actually brought with me in a sense, how do we do things more efficiently? And... Um, sometimes with less or sometimes with more resources. It just depends on, on the budget and also on your revenue streams that you have for your college. I've come to really love everything I've heard and read and, and talked about with value-based medicine. We've had several people on this podcast, including Christopher Chen, who you know probably from Chen Med, and Vivian Lee, who wrote the book, The Long Fix. Uh, she used to run University of Utah and now yep. runs Verily Life Sciences for Google. Great book, uh, Introducing Value-Based Medicine. You know, and it's surprising to me, we didn't learn any of that when I was in med school. And, you know, very practically speaking, how have you incorporated these kind of concepts that are here to stay, like value-based medicine, telehealth, maybe diversity, equity, inclusion into your curriculum? And, and does it just affect the allopathic students or do you find that there's much cross-collaboration with like the nursing or osteopathic or other groups? Yeah, so I just wanted to mention something about value-based medicine because we are not there yet. Whenever you innovate, you have to ask yourself, how hard can I push a concept? Because I think that every institution, and you see this with uh, a lot of leaders actually in this country, if you start things too early, you may not see your goal being fulfilled. If you do it too late, then it's uh, not innovation anymore. So value is a concept and it's not 
uh, just limited to medicine, but we're looking at value globally throughout all of our three missions, education, research, and healthcare. And I think it's not just reserved to health systems. Uh, I know that Vivian was a strong proponent of, and also Clay from Austin was a big proponent of value-based healthcare. And, you know, they tried really hard to push the envelope. And I think that uh, with all respect, the time wasn't ripe yet for implementation. You know, we still have, uh, particularly in specialty care settings, a strong lobby for fee-for-service models that will not go away. Uh, we tried now in primary care to get value-based uh, risk-bearing models together uh, that have received you know, varying degrees of adoption. And I think we are still kind of in an early stage to say, well, this is here to stay. Or the question now is, has the pandemic affected our thinking again? So we are living in a very dynamic environment where I think we are talking more about core concepts rather than very specific products that uh, we may or may not implement at the time. So I'm trying to be a little bit more cautious by putting out innovation at all costs, you know, forward, but really steering the ship in a way where it should be. And I think that prospective healthcare prevention is essential, as you could see on the pandemic. You know, if we would be better prepared, our health systems would be better protected. And what you see here in terms of uh, financial impact of health systems through the pandemic, it's just a, a major challenge for most health systems here right now, just being unprepared and not having the insurance coverage, treating patients, incentivizing the physicians in the right way. All these things need to be fixed. And uh, that's what uh, Vivian Lee writes in her book, The Big Fix. We have to fix a lot of things, but I think that the fixes that we talk about have something to do with what kind of time we live in. And I think that the COVID pandemic has, again, shifted, moved the needle in a certain way, and we have to readjust. So I think that in our profession, agility and flexibility and nimbleness is a key trait for whatever we do. And uh, that's what we just have to consider and be smart about it. I'm always talking about smart growth, smart leadership. Do everything smart before you push it too hard because I think each institution has a threshold for innovation, right? If you exceed that threshold, it's gonna be troublesome. If you stay below that threshold, I think you might actually reach your goal. So I just uh, would like to put the adjective smart to everything what we do here and be more strategic in uh, how we move forward, particularly with the medical school and also with our practice plan, with our health partner and how we deliver healthcare. And now I have the great privilege aside from the accreditation and from the educational component to really enter a new phase for our school where we're talking about how can we treat patients in a better, more cost-effective and more responsible way. So I think Everything what we do, you know, changes over time and we just have to adjust to that virtually on the fly. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with a lot of what you've just said there, including I love the every organization has a threshold of innovation. Uh, obviously, as a new school, you can be very innovative. It's blank slate, how you compose your faculty, your curriculum to some extent, because you still have to get LCME accredited and you did. And there's very firm guidelines around some of what you have to do there. So that's really interesting. Um, you know, obviously we're a teaching company and we love to fill in knowledge gaps for our learners, whether they be uh, students, practicing clinicians, or um, 
or even patients and their family members. What are some of the knowledge gaps that you think exist right now? You can choose any setting, whether students, clinicians, or patients that you would most like filled in. If you were able to snap your fingers and have us develop a course on something, what would you want that to be? Sure. I think that um, first and foremost is, you know, how to become leaders in digital health education. It sounds intuitive, but it's not that clear in which direction this can go with the different educational modalities that we're dealing with and really enticing the student to adapt to a different environment here right now. So I think the bigger issue that you're asking, Shiv, is to develop things in a more integrated fashion. And um, people may or may not appreciate that health, care, education, research is a continuum. And I think realizing that what we are trying to convey is how do you connect education with healthcare? How do you connect education with research in a form of an experiential learning experience that you can simulate, by the way, even online? So simulation and uh, the connectors between our triple mission, actually now it's a quadruple mission because uh, community service or the connection to the community has become the fourth pillar to stand on aside from education, research, and healthcare. So when you think about these things as interdigitated elements of our business and create bridges among those, I think you have a different product. Uh, you don't have a product that just you know, teaches students the basics of medicine, but how to apply it. And the application is sometimes what drives the students and makes better students, you know, either if it goes from research into education or from research into an application in the form of translation research or a clinical trial, these things need to be captured. And I think that also for you, not limiting yourself to the students or residents as learners, but also engaging more the healthcare workforce is a huge opportunity uh, because we have very little uh, nurses who can deal with clinical trials. We have the experience. So, the educational continuum is, you know, undergrad is graduate and professional. And I think a systematic review of those needs right now would be very helpful to guide you regarding additional educational products. Thanks for mentioning that. That's really, really helpful. And I couldn't agree more with the silos approach right now. There's pre-health, UME, the undergraduate medical education, GME yeah. for residency, and then CME. Just yeah. this year, we launched about 250 hours of CE credit and one of the courses I'm most proud of is we, we worked with Ariana Huffington and her team at Thrive Global. We had her on the podcast and made a whole course on nursing resilience as well, which is obviously more systemic in nature, but uh, for people to learn, it's a good thing. So I know we're coming up in time, but I did want to ask you, what advice do you currently give your students at Nova Southeastern, but also would you want to give our audience? We have over 2 million YouTube subscribers. Many of them are international healthcare students and professionals. What advice would you give them about approaching their careers in healthcare, especially during this once-in-a-lifetime moment? Well, I think there are some couple of guiding principles that I just would like to throw out for students and learners and or those who are interested in the health professions. Uh, maintain your curiosity, you know, maintain your open-mindedness, because I think it's a great opportunity to go into healthcare. And uh, we saw this with COVID that you know, there will always be health needs, you know, not just with this pandemic, but with other 
health challenges, particularly the seniors, you know, coming on board. I mean, there's just a lot of uh, new things that are coming on board that we haven't tackled yet. Aside from the curiosity and, you know, doing your due diligence by studying the market, I just would like to encourage everyone to communicate. For the individual, you need to build your own ecosystem of people who live in that field, whether it's an educator, a researcher, a doctor, um, and get as much information from these people and, and develop these connections that are not just regional, but can be national or international. So building connections is tremendously important to shape also your own opinions, because I feel that health is so complex that you know a single institution will not be able to address all of our health challenges. I've been at the Department of State as a Jefferson Science Fellow, and I have to tell you, this was one of my best experiences to look and see how government looks at health also in part as a weapon, as a, you know, uh, as a way of influencing elections and governments. I'm not talking about our government here, but this has happened elsewhere, too that um, health is being weaponized and is being utilized, you know, to uh, change governments or influence other governments throughout the country. And I think that the uh, collective input of individuals from different nations is very critical to develop those new concepts that are beyond value-based healthcare and beyond what we are talking about today, because we don't stop there. You know, we, we need to have something that is more global, international, that allows us to tackle new challenges before they happen. And I think the biggest issue is prevention. There is no incentive for me as a urologist to tell you about smoking cessation, which has major impact on your health. So why not? Why do I get more embarrassed if I do an unnecessary procedure on you than telling you about how to change your lifestyle? So I think these false incentives, you know, that are still out there, and they still don't go away uh, because they seem to be protected by some stakeholders, they will not prevail. I can tell you that because we can't afford our current healthcare system anymore. But the issue of prevention needs to be pushed harder, pushed harder globally, nationally, and regionally. And, um, you know, if we can prevent disease from happening and don't have to treat metastatic cancer anymore, but actually focus more on cancer prevention, healthy lifestyle, or early stage cancers, you know, we are saving a tremendous amount of money that could be reinvested in something better. So again, the term of value-based healthcare comes up that particularly is linked to prevention that produces savings for our entire nation that we can reinvest in better life, in living more healthy, in mental health, in opioid you know, prevention. I mean, there's just a lot of good things we can do with that money. And I'm saddened to see that we're actually wasting a lot of money because we are just not proactive enough. And uh, see, this is why we got blindsided with the pandemic. We were just not prepared. And that's a sad story, aside from the politics, you know, to have a pandemic in election year. Absolutely. I mean, the term that's burned into everyone's minds from last year is flatten the curve. You can draw an epidemiological curve, not just for viruses, COVID-19, but also for diabetes, for metastatic cancer, as you mentioned. You know, we have an yep. epidemic of colon cancer happening right now, too. And one of my hopes, and I assume based on your comments, too, is that we think more about flattening the curve across the board, like flatten the lung cancer curve. We'll need less 
you know, thoracic surgeons, if we're able to flatten that curve because people quit smoking and obviously vaping is sort of reversed that made that curve bigger than it was even a decade ago. But um, I love what you're doing there. And I mean, obviously, I think your students are are going to be very well situated with you at the head uh, because, you know, clearly you're speaking the language that they should be learning as they go through their programs. What else, I mean, I know we're, to be respectful of your time, my last question is, what else would you like our audience to know about you, about your program, or about healthcare in general? Anything you want to add? Yeah, I just wanted to finish this out with a thoughtful pledge, you know, to think about health not as a privilege, but as a human right. Thinking more about the question, how do we get there? I understand it's a, still a controversial subject, uh, not in Europe, uh, but in the United States. And having experienced you know, medicine in Europe, I felt very protected. I felt very good at how I was treated, even in a very basic mode of healthcare. But um, I think for the United States to think about that what we're doing today is right, particularly you know, with uh, lack of access to healthcare by some is just not acceptable. If something could happen, you know, to re-engage and have that conversation with stakeholders, think about this. If you are an African-American lady with a diabetes, maybe let's say it's type 1 diabetes, and she only comes to the emergency room when she has a hypo or hyperglycemic episode, and she bounces back from ER to ER because she just doesn't have the money to deal with insulin or she doesn't know how to eat or how to do things. Can you imagine in a value-based system? I mean, that's not value, that's expense. Uh, And I think that we are wasting a lot of money through a health system that is reactive and does not put patients, even if they're uninsured or underinsured, on a health plan that is much more accountable. So I think that just from a financial perspective, and I deal a lot with finance, it's just not conceivable to me that that type of waste is tolerable. So moving forward, I just think that we need to think about this and get smarter, how we deal with uninsured patients and really save costs by at least putting them on a minimal health program that is preventive and that avoids you know, major crisis that happen in the emergency room. And uh, I think that uh, you know, I'm not delusional, uh, this is not gonna happen overnight, but you know, health is a human right and it's not a privilege. And I think that we really need to work on that more. And my students love that topic. Uh, I tell you, um, if I can be an influencer, I, I influencing my students in that direction because I believe in it. And I think that something needs to happen here. Absolutely. And then the hundreds and thousands of students you're graduating uh, over the coming years will themselves hopefully be influencers in their communities and uh, whatnot. So, Dr. Fugue, I mean, thanks so much for not only taking the time to be with us yeah. today, but more importantly, literally raising the line by founding a new medical school and training the next generation of healthcare leaders. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you, Shiv. I enjoyed the questions and I wish you best of luck with your company. Thank you. With that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.